Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This week we talk about lies and the lying liars tell them. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are returning to Carcerai to explore the six layers that make up the plane. One thing that I failed to mention last week, something that is very important to note, is how you actually transition from one layer to another in Carcerai. It is very similar to the way it works in the Nine Hells, in that the lowest point of the upper plane will spit you out at the highest point of the next plane down. That's how the natural portals work. So there are going to be some complications on some of these on trying to actually get to the next layer. And that's something that I wanted to bring up and I forgot to. Yeah, now these layers are separate from the various orbs as you move in and out of, particularly the first layer itself has the orbs. And then once you get down, they exist, one would presume as well, though they're not mentioned the same as they are in that first layer. So you've got literally Oh, yes, layers. they are. Oh, okay. Yes, they are. I've, I've missed that. They, they're just spread out further. You've got layers within layers in this case is how I was going to phrase that. So it's very much almost a four-dimensional type setup in a weird way. Kind of. It's still in three dimensions, but the material in between disappears whenever you pass to a lower level. It's almost like electron levels on an atom, like electron shells. It's closer to 4 or 5D. The electron shells are weird. And this is coming they from are. a chemist. <laughs> they really are. I, I love electrons. I love shells. They're pretty. You've got something that moves the speed of light, has no mass, but momentum, can exist in multiple places at once. Electrons just don't exist. They're figments of our imagination. <laughs> They're the imaginary numbers that we add to make the math work. Yeah, honestly, the math behind the electrons and physical chemistry is some complex but beautiful, beautiful stuff. And it's it's cool. Yeah, (laughs) I was able to do the basic stuff that they taught us in school. I don't know that I would want to try and get into any of the more complicated stuff personally. Like I said, it's complex, but it really is beautiful. Just the way the math all just works. That and physics is really what got me to appreciate math again. Anyway, speaking of layers of hell... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it isn't hell, but it's the next worst thing. (laughs) Actually, I would say that Carcerai is worse than Bator. Because Bator, at least you could leave. Yeah, I was going to say you have the hope of escape. Mm -hmm. You don't have that just overwhelming sense of despair that I'm here forever. And you know, if you end up stuck in hell, you have the potential to become a devil and rise in power and not really suffer so much anymore. Yeah. You have that potential to do that. Whereas you don't have that in Carceri. You know, the Gareleths aren't made from the souls of the petitioners. They aren't risen petitioners that have reached some sort of enlightened stage. You know, they haven't been uplifted they are completely separate entities and so if you're a petitioner in carcerai you will always be a petitioner in carcerai this is true and very much like the old organic chemistry joke no matter how mad anyone's ever gotten you no one's ever told you to go to organic chemistry no one's ever told you to go to carcerai either so there you go so let's go ahead and get started in <laughs> all right talking about the layers of carcerai Yeah, this episode is probably going to be a little bit shorter than our other planar episodes because there isn't as much to talk about 
in Carcerai right. as there has been. I'm taking this as a personal challenge to try to derail Ian as often as I can. Don't you dare. <laughs> be a nice new year. Yeah, there'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> anyway. So the first layer of Carcerai is Authorus. It is named after Mount Authorus, which is the home of the Titans that have been cast out of Arborea by the Olympian gods into Carcerai whenever they were overthrown. Yeah, so once upon a time there was Mount Authorus. The gods of Olympus overthrew the Titans. They threw their mountain in there as well, and they needed a new mountain, so Mount Olympus kind of took the place of Mount Authorus kind of ish sort of it's complicated yeah it really is a whole new mountain there you go brand new <laughs> and this was of course after cronus the father of zeus and poseidon and hades had gone and overthrown his father uranus who was I the hey now none of that <laughs> who was married to gaia and they together spawned the titans the titans are their children and for those of you that don't know that's where you do in fact get the terms mother earth and father time it was chronos and gaia that gave birth to the gods and therefore the material plane as the greeks know it at the very least yeah so Authorus is the realm where politicians religious frauds and national traitors are bound so in general this is where you're going to find a bunch of charismatic smooth talkers that won't take no for an answer. These are all those political figures and televangelists and stuff that use their position to enrich themselves at the detriment of the people they're supposed to be serving. We're looking at you, Kenneth Copeland. We're looking at you real hard. Joel Osteen. Yeah, with what? The, like $60,000 buried in the walls? That was creepy. I think weird. it was 30000 but still. Oh, okay. uh-huh. Behind the toilet? Yeah, as we kind of discussed a little bit last week, this level is going to have kind of a uh, Dante's Inferno feel. Very easily you could throw whatever politician or famous figure that's kind of shady in there and just throw them in for your party because they would fit. If you're running a college of sophistry bard that we've discussed several times as one of our homebrews, if you want to check back our bard episode, you can hear more about them there. This place is going to be chock full of them. And you can find the write-up on our Patreon. Yes, but this place is going to be chock full of them. This is exactly where that school belongs. Like, if you could get out of Tartarus, I'd almost want to put the school here. It fits so well. Except for if you're here, you're probably not getting out. (laughs) Absolutely not, yeah. So these are individuals who truly only have their own personal interests at heart. This is where you'll have your self-aggrandizing televangelists. This is where you'll have your self-serving politicians. This is where you have your Benedict Arnolds. Your Dr. Oz's, who's double dipping apparently now. So, I mean, he's going to be double here. It's going to be great. And whenever I was doing some research for this episode, at least in the last layer of Carcerai, we have a historical precedent from Dante's Inferno, from the lowest level of hell, Cocytus, where there are souls that descend into hell for punishment before the mortal body is dead. Because there are politicians that Dante includes in the frozen ninth layer of hell that are still alive at the time that the book is published. And one of the people that he talks to in that ninth layer of hell explains that if they commit an act especially heinous, their soul is automatically ripped from their body and brought to hell for punishment and a devil inhabits their body for the rest of their body's mortal life. They're just placeholders. (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're so bad. No one's going to really notice the difference. Right. And then if you look even further at the absolute bottom layer of Dante's Inferno, where Satan himself is, that was kept for betrayers. So again, it fills this as well. The three particularly was Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. Yeah. So again, that level of betrayal rings all the way through. And that's still where this level is. So it fits very, very well with that thing. Yeah. And that is a theme that you can carry throughout Carceri if you really wanted to. So if you have a particularly heinous individual in your game world, you know, a villain that your party is having to deal with and your party ends up having to go to Carceri for some reason, they might run into the soul of that person, in which case they will know that the individual that they've been dealing with is no longer a person. It's a meat puppet. Is, it's a meat puppet. You know, there's a demon or a devil impersonating them and just filling the role until their job is done, basically. Which would be a great kind of end of arc adventure hook to kind of throw in is, you know, once your party somehow gets out of Carceris, going back and exposing and rectifying that would be a great way to do it. Also, if you've had other campaigns or other stories or interactions with a group, maybe you've had a group at your table that's been there for like two or three years or whatever, and you have particularly loved or hated villain NPCs, just toss them in here. Why not? Because it's a good place to find people. Not really. I wouldn't want to find anybody here. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Well, we're not dating them. It's just where they're popping up. <laughs> <laughs> so geographically, Othrys is a giant swamp. It's a layer full of bogs and quicksand because the river Styx flows through this layer and it permeates out through all of this marshy land and just saturates everything. So you end up having a very... Except for where the mountain is. I'm getting to that point. Okay, I'm sorry. I missed it on the notes. <laughs> Go ahead. So there are these pits of quicksand that dot the swamps. They can be anywhere from two to 2,000 feet deep. So as I mentioned earlier, finding the lowest point on Othrys would be how you would be able to get to Cathrys, which is the second layer. So it's probably at the bottom of one of these super deep quicksand pits. So you'd have to jump into a quicksand pit and go all the way down in order to pop out in the next layer down. Yeah, I could see that. Or I could see just one of the quicksand pits actually being almost like a portal at that point. There would be a portal. There would be a natural portal at the bottom of the bottom pit. Bottom of it, right. I'm just wondering how many rolls you'd have to take to get to the bottom of a 2,000-foot pit of quicksand. <laughs> it's a whole lot of holding your breath. A yeah. lot, yeah. I mean, because once you get so far down, you think of how much weight of all that quicksand. Yeah. I didn't even consider the weight. Yeah, all that pressure going through there see now quicksand you know again grew up in the 80s early 90s quicksand was supposed to be the most dangerous deadly thing that you'd ever come across like walking down the street and like oh my god quicksand ah you know and never like there was a lake or two nearby where i lived that had some quicksand i never saw it but like where's all the quicksand at the hell i feel ripped off oh my dollar back And one of the weird things about the quicksand that I found in the second edition book is that it glows green. It's radioactive quicksand. (laughs) But it's usually covered up with like sticks and grass and whatnot that hide it. But once you break into it, it gives off this green glow, which is kind of interesting, really. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking like the whole Toxic Avengers thing or maybe the booze from the Ninja Turtles way back when. That's the only thing I could imagine 
that the developers were thinking because that makes zero sense. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there was some LSD in the drawing room. I've got nothing. It was the 90s. I don't pretend to know anything. <laughs> the 80s and the 90s were a lawless time. Yeah. And another detail that I just realized that I forgot to mention last week regarding Carcerai is that all of these layers have this ambient red light that just seems to emanate from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. There's no sun in the sky. There's no day-night cycle. It is just this Russian nuclear missile silo on high alert red that you get in the movies. And that's where it stays all the time. That is a weird thing with Carcerai. Is talking about no day-night. Certain areas under aspects of God might have a a day-night schedule or cycle in a certain area. But then there's other areas that will try to mimic that. That's intentionally off because, again, deception is so ingrained within the plane itself. Right. Your natural rhythms or your clocks. So even if there were clocks or timekeeping devices they're all going to be largely inaccurate just because they'll intentionally be set wrong just to confuse people because why the hell not? (laughs) Yeah, that is an important point to note that there can be a day-night cycle, but only within the realm of a god and at that god's discretion. So if a god decides that he wants there to be a day-night cycle, there will be, but only within the realm of their influence. Correct. So naturally, because it is a giant swamp, it's going to be filled with mosquitoes and other biting insects and all of the things that you're going to find in a swamp. Luckily, unluckily, there is a native plant that you can use to repel the insects. It's called stinkweed. And for good reason, because if you break it open, the sap functions as a stinking cloud spell for 1d4 rounds. So basically you slather this stuff on and you gag yourself for 20 seconds before it dissipates enough to where you can function. Yeah, but I mean, depending on how harsh you want to make your realms as a DM, if you're having your mosquitoes and biting bugs carry stuff like malaria or river sleeping sickness. Yellow fever, dengue... Yeah, if you don't want your party rolling a bunch of con saves, then this might be be the better option and again depending on how harsh you want your environment to be as a dm you could just easily skip all that and just say you know they're mosquitoes it's an annoying another thing would be concentration checks for concentration spells would be a good way to roll that through so then you're weighing is it more likely that i can have this on and pass a concentration check or am i dealing with the bugs and then you end up having instances where you're like you have to make a constitution save in order to get the benefits of a shorter long rest. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Because having been in a situation where I've been being eaten alive by mosquitoes while I'm trying to sleep, that is a thing. That is definitely a thing. Yeah, I went on a camping trip and it was an SCA event and I had applied my mosquito spray, but then I took the outer tunic off and I was just wearing my under tunic and I didn't think that I hadn't put any on that under tunic and then i went to bed that night and when i got up the next morning we counted like 35 individual dime-sized welts on my back where the mosquitoes had literally eaten me (laughs) mosquitoes really love me and i really hate them so (laughs) i would pinch my nose and slather this stuff on in a heartbeat Anyway, the other big thing that lives in these swamps 
are trolls. Apparently, they are an introduced species. Some jackass decided to bring a bunch of trolls to the swamp. (laughs) And they actually really like it here. It's really conducive to them. And so they've reproduced quite a lot. And they, quote, lurk in the quicksand and the swamps like alligators. Oh, my. That is a wonderful description. Yeah. Troll in the dungeon. Thought you might want to know. (laughs) Yeah, just imagine, you know, you're walking through and you actually manage to detect that big old pit of quicksand. And so you're pussyfooting your way around it to make sure you don't fall in. And you're getting about halfway around and the troll comes out of it and attacks you. Right. Especially because like if it's a two foot or three foot thing of quicksand, he's just crouched down there with his giant troll club. That actually could be a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and imagine if you dotted the battle map with other pits of quicksand that like the players don't know how deep they are. That adds a really simple challenge or difficulty to the map. So you could just have a largely open map and just have some random pits that you'd have to avoid or maneuver around. So yeah, actually for a battle map, that'd be really interesting. To channel Eric from Goblin's Corner. He reaches out, grabs the paladin by the leg, drags him in and drowns him in the quicksand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're forever drowning the paladin in the swamp. Well, I mean, they're paladins. What are you going to do? Yeah, let's be real here. That's the best thing that a paladin could do is jump into the quicksand pit and give you a stepping stone to get across. But again, this is kind of neat. You don't see a lot of trolls on the table so much anymore. I mean, you get your goblins and stuff like that. Trolls have kind of passed largely out of the limelight, which is unfortunate because they can be a fun critter to put up on the table. Oh, they're great. Especially if you have a party that doesn't really have much in the line of fire or acid, because then it becomes, how do we hack him apart enough to get away? Yeah, because the trolls have that beautiful, beautiful regeneration. Yes. All right. Within the swamps, you have the occasional stilt village made from the harvested mangroves and cypresses that grow on this layer. And the stilts are tall enough to where they can avoid being inundated with water whenever the sticks floods the swamp because it does have a fluctuation to it. So the villages are built far apart because obviously nobody trusts anybody else. But despite that, neighboring villages do tend to maintain diplomatic relations with one another. But they also commonly raid one another in wars that are, quote, fairly interesting and spiffingly bloody. (laughs) That is a wonderful description. You can kind of get a feel for these. Some of the troll villages in WoW and the actual Warcraft games kind of fit this. If you want a real-world example, you can look at some of the swamps and bayous within Louisiana and Mississippi. Even currently now, a lot of the houses are up on stilts like that because floodwaters either from the river or from like when hurricane storm surge comes in that water level can rise significantly to the point where a lot of the houses will have a dock attached and families will just have a small boat so if the water's up they can just take the boat instead of the car to kind of get where they need if they have to get to a friend's house or something like that so these are things you can kind of look up if you need to build something in your imagination to kind of get that feel you can probably pull some of those pictures up and like here it looks like this yeah and there are some other examples you know there are some villages on the river like in the amazon and some in south asia like Malaysia, Cambodia, that area, maybe, especially with them specifically mentioning Cyprus and mangrove. So that would be a location where you would end up having the mangrove swamps. You would have these stilt villages built up in and around the mangrove groves. Yes, the swamp village in Avatar, where they have the jungle waterbenders, would fit this really, really well as far as like a mental image. Yeah. 
All right. The air here in Authoris also has an effect on anyone who's here for any period of time, more than about a week or two. One of the things it does is it gives everyone a flat plus one bonus to intelligence and all intelligence based checks. Woohoo, doing some test prep. <laughs> <laughs> but it also makes the person more cunning and selfish and willing to ensure that their plans benefit them and no one else. So it makes the party more willing to backstab one another, which is going to be something that you have to work very carefully on to make sure that it doesn't just devolve into PvP at the table. Yeah, no, I personally absolutely love a little bit of inner party conflict. I think it adds a ton to the story into the game, but it has to be done very gently. This isn't something you probably want to throw at brand new players, but players that know how to work into a party and kind of push that envelope a little bit and not so much as just going outright and in being assholes because again, don't be an asshole at the table. But, you know, kind of nudging the other players a bit for the sake of story. This can be a lot of fun if done correctly. Yeah, this would be a great thing to do as sort of a side quest and a high intrigue game. So something where the players are already in that mindset of scheming and plotting and trying to one up the other. It's just that instead of groups of NPCs, the other PCs become the other. Right. So you're not necessarily trying to dick them over. You're trying to manipulate them into having them do the thing that you want them to do because it benefits you. Yes. Again, we need to summon Herschel here <laughs> just because he would do so wonderfully well. <laughs> All right. So there are two major landmarks in this layer. The first one is the Bastion of Last Hope. It looks like this giant squatting obsidian toad. The only entrance is through the toad's mouth and the guards are posted where its eyes should be. As we mentioned before, this is a stronghold maintained by the Anarchists or the Revolutionary League. And they have a portal within that is one of the very few two-directional portals to Sigil. So one of the two-directional portals that actually lead off of Carcerai. Right. And again, this is going to be where you're going to have your kind of 80s punk feel. Another would be kind of like the Lost Boys almost. When I read about these folk, you know, the anarchists, I really thought about Vampire the Masquerade with White Wolf and the Bruja. If you've played that game, definitely has that flavor to them. Having played a Bruja, I can see that. Yeah. Within the Bastion, there is a blind doctor named Blind Trust, which I think is just a great name on so many levels. Yeah. But despite the fact that he's blind, he is one of the best face surgeons in the multiverse. And so people will go to him in order to get facial reconstruction surgery just to look like someone different. You know, like if they're trying to avoid capture. Because the disguise self skill is just way too complex, apparently. <laughs> well, because disguise self can be dispelled and it wears off. Fair enough. So you have to reach a certain amount of desperation if you're willing to go to a blind guy to get your face redone. This is true. So if you go under the knife, you will come out changed, usually for the better. There is a chance that he gets drunk and botches the job. So you go in and then you come out just like missing a nose. And there is a small chance that he just goes a bit kooky for a little bit and 
chops you to pieces. Yeah, I was going to say. That is an option. Yeah, you have it listed here in your notes, but this is absolutely something you'd come across in Fallout. This is some of the... This is Doc Crocker from Diamond City in Fallout 4. Yeah, things like this where the old Fallout really shines through, particularly Fallout 1 and 2, was very much based off of the D&D tabletop model. I'm also kind of thinking Minority Report where Tom Cruise has to go and he has to get the new set of eyes. And so you're visiting that shady backwater surgeon. You may or may not wake up with both kidneys. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so the other major location within Othrys is, of course, Mount Othrys. There is a spot where the high peaks on two of the adjacent orbs come close together and the temple slash mansion slash palace The realm that is Mount Othrys is sitting perched between those two, forming a bridge from one orb to another. It is this giant, sprawling facility with amphitheaters and such made of white marble, but it is slowly eroding and crumbling because there is no white marble in Carceri, so they can't repair it as it's being damaged. It is a fact that the Titans really don't like to have attention drawn to, and it makes them very angry to the point where they will likely smite you if you bring it up. These look just like the ruins in Athens. (laughs) Just to Um, double rub salt in that wound. It is also the reason why no one has actually volunteered to import white marble for them to actually repair it. Because they could do that, but they are so angry at the Olympian gods for even putting them in the situation that they would smite you for the suggestion. Oh, I love this. Okay, so this is an evil scenario, but I would do it as a DM. If the party doesn't know, maybe there's a marble quarryman or vendor in Sigil, and they're trying to make that sale. I kind of send them here to Karsarai to find the Titans and try to get them to. Maybe that vendor's trying to make the party disappear for one reason or another instead of attacking them outright. Personally, I would do it that they are completely clueless and they keep hiring people to go and do this, and they're wondering why in the world nobody ever comes back. That could be a reason, too. Both of those work. I was thinking the whole deception thing here in Carceri, though, it would be a really like, they're trying to make this party go away. Maybe they've already promised them a big reward that they don't want to pay. So they offer them an even bigger one if they'll deliver this message. Wink, wink. And they're here just to piss off the Titans and get smooshed. Either way, lots of fun. So one of the really cool things about Mount Othrys is that it maintains its own plane of gravity. So you'll be climbing up the mountain and you'll see the temple up above you. And once you reach the top of the mountain and you step off of the mountain onto the marble floor of the temple, gravity shifts to where the floor is now underneath you. That would probably make me queasy, but kind of cool. And so it shifts to be normal for the orientation of the palace whenever you leave the mountain and enter the palace, and then it will shift back whenever you leave the palace to get onto the mountain, which might actually be harder to do going from Wurtstone to the summit of a mountain. Yeah. That's how you fall down a mountain, boys and girls. That's exactly how you do it. (laughs) Or you have, you know, a level one dwarf that apparently can't walk anywhere. (laughs) There was that. (laughs) Poor Dougal. Yeah. Anyway, that is another story for another time. One of the other hazards of Mount Othrys is that there are numerous creatures from Greek myth 
just wandering the halls that have grown to enormous size in the influence of the Titans. And the Titans often treat them as pets. And so they get really upset if adventurers come in and kill one of them. So we're looking at things like Chimera, Hydras, Harpies, Gorgons, Minotaurs, some things like the Nemean Lion, so the lion whose hide cannot be pierced by weapons, or the Mares of Diomedes, which are these man-eating horses. You know, just imagine a man-eating horse big enough to carry a titan. I'm telling you, horses are evil. They are. Horses are spiteful, evil, vicious things. They are. Nobody believes me. I've raised horses. They're spiteful, evil, hateful things. (laughs) And they're terrible on fences. Anyway, so Mount Othrys is where Cronus, the patriarch of the Titans, holds his court. And mortals will occasionally come there to avail themselves of his wisdom or to seek a boon. And sometimes he will listen to them. Sometimes he'll be angry enough to just smite them out of hand. The other Titans do occasionally also come here to meet with Cronus because they've been summoned and they're really upset about having been summoned. So if you can catch them before they go and talk to Cronus, you might catch them in a good mood because they will always be in a foul mood when they leave their meeting with Cronus. Now, the Titans hold the same kind of familial relationship that the Greek gods do, which is beautifully dysfunctional. So it's kind of like having that really bad, awkward Thanksgiving Day dinner with your family and everyone hates each other and are sitting there glaring as they're cutting into the turkey, that kind of thing. <laughs> which, you know, again, Greek mythology is full of that. The Titans equally so. That said, up to the DM, if you have more than one Titan showing up there, you might be able to play one Titan off the other. Again, Carceri, you've got that deception and that backstabbiness that's kind of innate to the realm. So thematically, that would fit with the setting and scenario. And Cronus is known for being a very cunning, very plotting sort of individual and very good at it. So he will play the Titans off of one another to achieve his own ends. Remember, this was the dude that was eating his sons so they could not overthrow him. That gives you just a baseline what you're working with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. And so the Tanari, the demons, often come here to the Titans hoping to secure their substantial aid in the Blood War. And the Titans will often humor them, hoping that there is some element of their plans that will help them escape their imprisonment on Carceri to get back up and smite the Olympian gods and retake their rightful place. And they will often realize at some point in the plot that the plan that the demons have doesn't actually give them that. In which case, the demons rarely escape with their lives. Another really fun thing you could do with this is try to set up another conflict between the gods and the titans via one of these messengers, or even doing a titan version of the Iliad War or the War on Troy, which would be, again, depending on how imaginative you are or how well-based in the classics you and your party are, this would be a really fun thing to do, because this is a very easy way to have those patrons fighting for and against your party yeah again i kind of geek out on this thing i love the classics classic history this is has always been my flavor so oh my god joey yeah i'm gonna have the trojan war sitting around the table it's gonna be great right yeah big old horse yes all right so that is going to lead us into our second layer of cathras it is also referred to as the scarlet jungle because it is primarily comprised of these steamy jungles filled with the stench of decay because all of the plants on Cathras ooze acid instead of sap. 
and the acid can eat through nearly anything. The stats that they give for it are that it will eat through metal in 1d10 rounds, eat through leather in 1d4 rounds, and deal 1d6 acid damage per round to exposed flesh. Right, your party, if they're here, they're probably buying new armor after they leave this area, if they get to leave this area at all. Just because, again, if your cleric's got a mending spell, they're going to be using the crap out of it just to keep up with things. You wouldn't be able to keep up, because mending takes a minute to cast. Fair point. So you have to be constantly casting mending on a single metal item in order to maintain it and hope that the acid didn't finish eating through it before the spell was finished. Right. Now, here, again, you have the plants, so I would see a lot of, like, assassin vines and strangle things, maybe some briar thorn type stuff. I wouldn't say normally that your adventurers would pick up the acid just walking through the jungles. I mean, you could do that to them if you wanted to. I would make it, though, that literally if they've damaged or broken the plants to get through, it would bleed through. Kind of like the xenomorphs and alien. You know, they have that acid blood that eats through everything. But they have to take damage first. It wouldn't just be something they're secreting. Right. And there would be instances where you're like, the vegetation here is too dense to go through. So you either have to go around or hack your way through. And if they haven't figured this out yet and they go to hack their way through, oh, buddy, you're about to have a bad time. (laughs) That's where you get the Kool-Aid and little spray bottle and you just start spraying the map. (laughs) All of this is acid air now. Yeah, let's not do that. But there are also patches of grassland interspersed between the jungle. And the grasslands aren't much better, though they are habitable. They are dry and windy, sort of getting that Serengeti sort of feel to them. And the scarlet grass cuts like knives. Right. To the point where if you're not wearing armor, you take 1d4 slashing damage any round that you try and move through it. There is a type of grass that grows. I know it grows in California. I think it grows in the middle of the U.S. as well. It's called horsetail grass. And this plant naturally pulls silica out of the ground and incorporates it in the cellulose and the plant fibers. So it's really hard on animals' teeth. It wears them down really fast because of those silica particles. And I could see this red grass having that kind of silica along along the blade edge of the leaves. So it'd be like getting cut with glass knives as you went through, would be how I would describe that. You know, the fact that it's red, it could be pulling iron. Yeah, and you could do it that way as well, yeah. And so it is literally like a blade in that case. That would work. So this whole layer is almost like the evil counterpart of the Beastlands because you have the jungle and you have the grasslands, but rather than being these lush, habitable places that all of the animals can thrive in, they are very harsh and violent and punishing. Yeah, no, that brings up a perfect point. Yeah, this is a perfect mirror. I like it, yeah. So Catherus is the layer for those individuals who gave into bestial urges rather than logic and thought. So this is going to be a place where you end up finding cannibals, people who are violently cruel to other people for the sake of cruelty. This is where you're going to find evil barbarians and druids. That's the sort of vibe that I get. No, I can totally feel that. That makes sense. I think a blighter druid here would be amazing. That fits really well. I like that theme. Yeah, everything about this is just kind of wanting to hurt and break down 
on the inhabitants of the plane. So yeah, it definitely has that thematic feel, just the environment. So yeah, yeah. no, I've got, yeah, that works. And so the Ferastu, the lesser Gareleths, if you can really call them that. The sticky ones. <laughs> they live in the jungle. And for unknown reasons, they're either unwilling, unwelcome, or unable to leave the forest and enter the grasslands. It might just be that if the grass actually is pulling iron from the ground, like we just happened to suggest, maybe they just get bound up in it and stuck if they try and walk out of the jungle. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to voluntarily walk through a Serengeti field of knives that are just going to cut you up in your feet every day. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm chill here. No, I'm good. Right. <laughs> but there is a town that I forgot to pull that I read about. It's basically built on stilts in this caldera of acidic tar that the frostus live in the tar under the city and the city is set up in such a way that the tension of the rope bridges between each stilt platform is what holds each individual platform up so if they have some hostile entity come in to like raid the town or something. All that they do is they cut the ropes to whatever platform they happen to be on and just watch as that platform sinks into the tar. Ooh, a great defense. Kind of vile, but a great defense. Well, everybody's out for themselves. It's yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. It's a sense. damn shame that they were over there on that platform. Oops. It's a damn shame. Damn straight. So on the grasslands, you end up having villages, but they're very few and far between. They usually comprised of barbaric tribes that raid one another for food and meat. Quite often, the meat being the flesh and blood of other petitioners. As we noted earlier, your cannibals are going to wind up here. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually build their huts out of razor grass. So I don't know how they work that, but they do. Very carefully. Yeah. And there are roads throughout the grasslands that connect all of these settlements that are maintained by hill giants that are here as part of the adherence of Grolantor, the god of hill giants, or the humans that are in these towns. And the roads have to be constantly maintained because not even trampling this stuff will keep it from growing back on the roadways. So you have to be constantly cutting it and uprooting it and removing it in order to maintain a clear roadway for you to travel. That would be a hell of a chain game to be on. Because like I said, the stuff's cutting you anyway, and you're going to have to at least be hip deep in it, cutting back the wilds, just kind of keeping the roads clear. Yeah, that would suck. (laughs) It would. Speaking of Grolantor, the steading of Grolantor is the big thing that you can come here to find. Grolantor is one of the most powerful beings on Karsarai, but his schemes all seem to be willingly self-destructive because he lacks the will to use his power in a logical way to gain an advantage. He refuses to let himself think because he is very attuned to that bestial might makes right sort of deal. You can tell whenever you enter his realm because the grass changes color. It shifts from the red grass that you would normally see to brown. And it is very hilly, him being a hill giant and all. So there's something like a hundred hills around the periphery around the steading. And each one of them has this little hilltop fort on it. You can tell which ones of the forts are in favor with Grolantor and which ones are not by how well stocked and well fortified they are. The ones that are not in good favor at whatever time you find them look like a good stout breeze will blow them over. And again, if you're looking for adventure hooks, this is something you could use as well as you could probably set up a regional map 
and have seven or eight of these forts and then having to do it would kind of be like a faction type scenario where you'd pick a fort or two trying to gain the favor of Gorlinor so they can become better stocked better supplied and they would send you on missions to work with or against various other forts for different things this leads very easily to some group mechanics if you're like what am I going to do with my party here this right here you could have weeks and weeks of scenarios just plopped on the table just working these factions against each other right yeah And because the giants, whenever they don't have anything else to fight, will go and fight each other. As one of the things that they'll do is, you know, these hilltop forts, they'll go and raid their neighbors whenever they don't have anything better to do. And because the strongest group is the one that's going to gain favor. And so the stronger you are, the more favor you gain. But if they happen to find outsiders within the realm... Your party. (laughs) Yeah. If they find your party, it's an equal toss-up whether they will attack you, leave you alone, or take you back to the steading to see Grolantor. If they take you back, it's also even odds whether you are fed to Grolantor, given treasure in hopes to make you an ally... Or just squished for the fun of it. Just because I like the feel of jelly between my toes. I do not like the feel of jelly between my toes. I love walking barefoot through the gnome garden, feeling them squished between your toes. The gnomes, not the garden. <laughs> the exception to this is if you're a dwarf. Dwarves are killed on sight because dwarves and giants have real bad blood going on between them. To the point where... In 3rd edition, at least, dwarves got bonuses specifically when fighting giants. Again, favorite enemy worked rather differently. That is one of the things with 5th edition I kind of don't like is favorite enemy was really nerfed hard. You used to get plus 1, plus 2 damages and rolls to a favorite enemy. And now, oh, we just, we contract them easier, wink, wink, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And one of the neat little cultural things that they do is they wear severed human feet as lucky charms because they view humans as, quote, irritating nuisances that are occasionally good for trade or supplies and that sometimes make amusing pets, though they are usually only make for tasty food. So, yeah, if you're a human or a dwarf in your party, you probably want to avoid this area. Just, <laughs> Just maybe. maybe a little bit. And the steading itself is this giant, sprawling, miles-long wooden structure it's a single story structure built on a giant scale but it is just sprawling across these multiple hilltops miles in every direction and that's where Grolantor tends to be he does also have a second realm vacation home in the abyss but he prefers to live here it has to do with the order and the chaos in the abyss again kind of where he has that ability to think but the chaos of the realm distracts him more so in the abyss it's kind of like when you've got a bajillion things on your brain and you can kind of come home and the house is still kind of crazy but it's not as crazy as work so it's a little bit more relaxing at home (laughs) yeah and so the last little bit about the steading is that there are these pits and holes throughout the realm some of them are naturally occurring some of them look like they've been dug by some really large creature so if you are you know fighting a giant or being chased by a giant and you hop down into one of these to try and get away you start being taken by this paranoia that just puts you straight into prey mentality escape mode so if that happens any creature that intends to fight a giant automatically goes last in initiative order and if you intended to run away from the giant you automatically go first in the initiative order 
I like it. That's a nice little effect. It's not quite the all-encompassing fear effect. So, I mean, that does add some flavor. It would be harder to ask your party members what they intend to do before combat, but definitely something interesting and workable. I think that's a fairly easy thing to do at the top of the round. Are you fighting or running? That's it. Well, I'd have enough party members. I'd be like, I don't know. I want to hold my action. You can't hold your action. You have to pick. That would be something you would have to push as a DM. Yeah. Now, the other location, this one is from 3rd Edition, and it's a whole lot of fun. James and I really like this one. Yes. It's a location called the Apothecary of Sin. If I ever make a nightclub, it's going to be this, and I'm going to have Bill Hader do his stuff and impression to talk about, oh my god, they've got everything. (laughs) (laughs) So it is this hut that is built above the trunk of a large tree in this acidic jungle that can be accessed by a series of rope-suspended catwalks through the trees. And it is an establishment that is run by a Glabrazu demon named Sinmaker. For those of you playing at home, the Glabrazu are these sort of 9-10 foot tall dog-headed demons that have two sets of arms. They have a smaller set with normal hands basically coming out of the armpits of these two bigger arms that end in these pincers that go pinchy pinchy and body parts disappear as will happen think something of a cross between anubis and a crab <laughs> kind of so this glabrazu is named sin maker which i told james if he makes his bar called apothecary of sin his bartenders are going to be called sin makers oh absolutely yeah this has to be like one of those clubs slash dance clubs slash bars that you see in all the action movies with the weird lighting every cyberpunk nightclub yeah absolutely <laughs> so the thing about the apothecary of sin is that any poison mundane or exotic can be found here and sin maker will sell it to anyone because that's what he do that's what he does and he's really good at it the more diabolical the poison the more he likes it and you can buy it in any volume from a single vial to a thousand dose keg now one of the neat things they talk about sin maker when he's doing this is He is not so much a merchant as he is experimenting and just enjoys what he does. So while you can buy these poisons and a lot of them are not cheap by any regard, he's not doing this for profit. So he's probably selling a lot of these things close to cost just because he's experimenting and he enjoys doing it, which is kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah. And in the third edition manual of the planes, there is a unique poison to this location called Sinmaker's Surprise. Ta-da! It costs 4,400 gold a dose. And whenever you use it, it is a DC 24 fort save on an injury, so if you apply it to a weapon, or a DC 18 if you ingest it. So in 5th edition, that would probably be con saves of about an 18 and a 15, respectively. The initial base damage on this is 1d6 acid damage per round for three rounds. It doesn't matter if they succeed or fail. It just does it because it's acid and poison. If they fail their initial saving throw, they take 2d6 points of constitution damage. If they fail their secondary saving throw, which they would do one minute later, they take an additional 2d6 points of constitution damage for a grand total of 4d6 constitution damage that's an average of 14 points of constitution damage that will kill just about any character yeah i was gonna say the cons tech gets ignored by a lot of players and this will put most of them down yes so that's on average 14 max 24 
con damage. So yeah, it's nasty, and this is where you can get it. So like, if you come up against a Frostu that you have to handle, and your party has way more money than it technically needs or should have, getting a dose or two of the Sinmaker Surprise and putting it on something like a sword, and then letting it use that stickiness to kind of trap your weapon. So now it's going to be pulling it in on an injury anyway, because it's kind of accepting the injury as it traps your weapon. And then you just hope it fails the con roll, because I'm pretty sure they're not rocking a 20 plus con score themselves. So again, you can get through a lot of trouble with this poison if you can afford it see the issue with that is that garoliths are immune to acid and poison oh that's right they are immune to poison crap (laughs) well so much for that idea scratch that one right off the list yeah so (laughs) i forgot about that poison immunity they're fiends and most fiends are immune to some combination of acid poison and fire best laid plans my friend best laid plans (laughs) it was a good idea It's not going to come to anything, but it was a good idea. But that's about all we've got for the second layer. So while we're here at Karathas, another kind of a pop culture thing you could throw in. But if you were brave or willing or adventurous enough and wanted to run kind of like a Hellraiser landscape or a Hellraiser type scenario, this is absolutely where your Cenobites are going to be. So, you know, you have that limit configuration and your people are just going to get pulled right into this Karathas because, again, it is that people that subsist and exist on that sadism and that kind of twist mentality of pleasure for pain's sake and pain for pleasure's sake where it goes back and forth this would be the absolute perfect place to run that kind of scenario or have those kinds of pop culture creatures thrown in yeah i could definitely see that that would be a good place to do that yeah going on to the third layer of minithis this is also referred to as minithis the blasted this is where we have our eternal sandstorms it is a realm of cold deserts and cutting winds this is going to wind up being something like between Tatooine, Arrakis, and the U.S. Dust Bowl of the 1940s. Yes, <laughs> it does have that very Dust Bowl feel to it because the wind here is constant, like in Pandemonium, but without that maddening whistling because it doesn't have all those chambers to blow through. But all of the vegetation that was here has been ripped up and all the soil has been carried away. So all you have are these clouds of dust and this driving sand that just scours everything. And the dust itself also has the effects of a stinking cloud spell. So you either have a lower wind, which allows the dust to sort of swell and swirl and congregate, and you have this stinking cloud, or you have the harsh wind that are blowing the sand everywhere and run the risk of you know sand blasting you to death because not even the petitioners are immune to the sand no i mean this it's everyone again this is where we're bringing anakin because this is where he deserves to be well i mean this is where anakin deserves to be because of the traits and because of anakin yes. not because of what anakin did Right. Because Minithis is the layer for misers and the greedy. These are individuals who won't share anything with anyone who hasn't paid for it. This is the Ebenezer Scrooge layer. There isn't much use for coin here, because why would there be? So they tend to barter for services and for rags to protect themselves from the wind and the clouds. Because one of the details that it does give is that if you're in one of these dust clouds, if you cover your face with a wet rag, you can negate the effects because it'll filter out the dust. That would probably be just the stinking cloud aspect of this. I would, as a DM, probably give a lifespan of some sort to your cloth and rag as there's 
so much abrasive sand that obviously your fibers are being broken down. And so these rags are going to come at a premium because they are going to be so hard to keep any kind of cloth of quality about. The sand that's blowing is going to abrade these rags and wear them down with the dust because that's going to be a lower wind so you're not going to have the driving sand with that part. But that dust, if you have a wet rag on your face, is eventually going to clog that rag up to the point where you can't breathe through it anymore. You're just going to have this caked layer of mud over your face. And so eventually you will have to take that rag off and change it out for another one. I was going to say, this is where you're going to have your cleric with create water so you can wash your rags. <laughs> Prestidigitation. Yeah, that would work too, actually. Yeah, that'd be a great use for that spell. So this layer is home to the Gautier that we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, as well as the Fomorian god Karantor. Though not specified in anything that I could find, Karantor would probably have a realm here because he is a god. And given the nature of the Fomorians, it's probably going to be subterranean. So I'm thinking something like the remnants of like a ruined city, maybe, that's been buried in the sand and that they perpetually have to dig their way out of whenever they want to leave it. So you never know exactly where the entrance is going to be because it's wherever they have dug through where the sand is the thinnest. I could see that or something like in Dune where you had a bunch of cave complexes and depending on which direction the winds and stuff are shifting, you know, an entrance could be filled in with sand that you'd have to dig out or they could be open, but there's enough complexes they could work around. But very subterranean, either man-made or caverns. Yeah, it definitely has that feel. And then... On top of that, you have these tornadoes. If the sandstorms weren't bad enough, there's also tornadoes. And the tornadoes, if they pick you up, will take you to another orb. So you can hop from one planetoid to another by hopping into one of these tornadoes. This is how we get our Grimdark Oz. Yes, but this is if you survive the trip. And you were there. And you were there. Yeah, no, I really want to do that Grimdark Oz. I think that would be a really fun scenario to draft up. And so the one location that I could find for Minithis from 3rd edition is called the Sand Tombs of Peyrathion. So it's this abandoned ruined city that has long been buried by the sands and occasionally the sands shift in such a way that it'll uncover for an hour or so before it buries it back i've seen this movie it has rachel weiss and brandon fraser yeah exactly. and the rock yeah terribly cgi'd rock yes i still love that movie i don't care how bad it was <laughs> i love the movies so there are these creatures that live here that are just referred to as sand gorgons. There's no stat block for them. I can't find any actual creature called a sand gorgon in second edition or third edition where this is actually being mentioned. But I see it as kind of like a boulette basilisk hybrid because they are mentioned as being dragon-like. So they are reptilian. So that gives me the basilisks part, but it's also stated that they can swim through the sand like water. I like it. So that gives me that burrowing boulette sort of vibe. Yeah, no, I like that. I think... If I was going to create one of these, I would say they could probably create a minor sandstorm of their own, as well as a stun or a petrifying gaze. They would have to have a petrifying gaze in order to be gorgons. 
one of the things you forgot to bring up, or I skipped ahead, I'm not sure which, but these sandstorms, if they've hit anything that's exposed, that's not covered by armor or cloth, but just bare flesh, you're doing 1d6 abrasion damage per round. Yes. So having one of these Gorgons able to stun party member where they can't escape, and now they're just taking a tick of this extra damage would be a really, really harsh thing to fight. Right, and the way that I like to run petrification is it's a series of saves like you get three chances and it'll get progressively worse or better like the first one you're slowed the second one you're stunned the third one you're petrified okay just because going straight to petrified sucks yeah that was very much a second edition thing yeah that's not fun we don't like doing that that's when you carry your vial of soft for all of your final fantasy players you keep yeah. that vial of soft on you just in case just in case and it also mentions that the original inhabitants of the town who are now petrified undead still wander the streets, but they're so eroded by the blasting sands that there are no indications of their gender, of their race, any sort of identity beyond just humanoid shape. While I'm sure that that's listed in the book, I'm just curious, how do the petrified undead wander? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> They function like animated statues. Yeah, totally. Oh my god, it's Disneyland with the animatronics. So to take a 5th edition analog, this would be a place very much like the Domain of Dread Harakir from Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, that Egyptian mummy-themed kind of feel. So yeah, just add some mummy lords and you've got yourself a setting. No, that would be absolutely perfect. And Van Richten's is definitely on my to-purchase list for this upcoming year. Yeah, it's great. It's got a lot of really good stuff in it. That and Strixhaven, though. I'm really wanting Strixhaven, too. I picked up my copy of Strixhaven like two days before Christmas. Snazzy. Yeah, it's sharp. It's the alternate art cover. It's gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. I'm jelly. You just have to get in good with my comic book store. Yeah, I really do. He'll order it and just keep it in reserve for you. My issue is I love my digital copies because it's easier to carry on my phone. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. The, the problem with that is, and again, I'm reaching out if we ever have, you know, creators or mods on our thing between D&D Beyond, which I have most of my books from, and then Roll20, which I want more books. Unfortunately, the compendiums don't necessarily cross over, so I have to buy them on both. But I would love to be able to transfer my compendium from one to the other to set up like an online gaming scenario would, would be incredibly helpful. So yeah. Yeah. If you listen to us and you have any influence on in that at all, I would even pay like an extra 10 bucks a month to be able to do that. Just that saves me from repurchasing 40, $50 books over and over again, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. That pretty much takes care of Menethys. So let's go ahead and get into our fourth layer of Colithus. Number four. Which is also referred to as Climber's Doom because the entire layer is made up of mountains that stretch hundreds of miles into the air with intervening gorges to match. Okay, I don't like this place. Let's skip it. <laughs> so in some of the areas, you have these very narrow footpaths that are carved into the side of the mountains. And by very narrow, I mean these are one foot wide paths carved into the side of the mountains because somebody decided that they wanted to try and establish trade routes through here. Yeah, I was thinking this is going to be kind of like the path they're using in Fellowship of the Ring before they decide to go to Moria. Yeah, this is a land of nope. This is Gimli and Aragorn sneaking around Helm's Deep to get onto the bridge. Yeah. But in addition to these narrow footpaths, there are also these rickety rope bridges that'll span from peak to peak. 
Have I said this is a land of nope yet? Because this is definitely a land of nope. <laughs> yeah, it's not a whole lot of fun. It's not my idea of fun anyway, because you also end up having these straight line winds that run through the valleys. And so if you happen to be on a rope bridge and the wind picks up, you're going for a ride. And it's a long way down. Just hope you've prepared Featherfall. (laughs) And time it right, because you're going to be falling for miles. Yeah. So Colophus is a layer for liars and cheats. Specifically, those liars whose lies caused harm to others. So this would be the guy that was like, oh, yeah, I checked those parachutes before you guys went on the plane. These are the guys pushing the ivermectin. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Guys, you are not a horse. Do not take ivermectin. Never mind the fact that COVID and worms are two completely different things. You are not a horse. Do not take ivermectin. Continuing on. (laughs) So there are some areas within this realm where you have flat spots where they can build these sort of squat little snugged up against the mountainside villages and the occasional small plateau at the top of one of these mountains. And these are where the petitioners will build, you know, just small hovel villages and they will fight one another tooth and nail to defend their tiny ledge or to take someone else's. With these, I kind of think of like the little Sherpa camps towards the base of the Himalayas, particularly Mount Everest, where they're just kind of built into the base of the mountain as much as they can because they're trying to shelter from the wind and the weather. Again, these aren't going to be necessarily large, highly developed structures are going to be fairly simple because again they are taking a lot of weather damage they are subject to fairly frequent raids so again very simple easy to build kind of structures yeah and if you're wondering well why doesn't anyone just build in the valley bottom this is why you don't build in the valley bottom because of avalanches and because of gareliths and demons that roam the valley bottoms. There are people who live down there. They are considered to be the exiles of the exiles. Nobody wants to live in the bottom because you'll either get eaten, snagged by a garelith and tortured for a few millennia, or you'll be grabbed by a demon and conscripted into the blood war. Or you'll get buried by about 20 tons of snow, which is your best option, really. (laughs) Yeah, that really is your best option. So one of the major landmarks within this layer is the land of the hunt, which is the realm of Malar, the Forgotten Realms god of the hunt. He usually appears as a great cat, you know, a tiger or a panther or a lion covered in blood. Some of it is usually his because he loves nothing more than the hunt. And he's constantly wandering his realm in search of game to hunt. Um, His realm in particular is a little less steep than the rest of the plane. And it's crisscrossed by proper game trails all over the place. Because game ranging from rabbits to elephants all wander this realm. Because this is how they get their kicks. Because it is a realm where the prey is going to be as strong as, if not stronger than, the hunter. And the hunter has to show cunning and foresight in order to wear down their prey to actually hunt it. This is where the predators go, like the movie Predators, the aliens. Yes. They don't have an actual technical alien name, which I am still vastly disappointed with. I mean, even 
an alien, they have xenomorphs, which is a, a perfectly viable name. The predator's just the predator. Eh. But yeah, they would definitely love this, where again, it's that hunting of the most dangerous prey. You don't want something simple and easy to kill. You want something that is going to challenge your every skill and ability in order to be successful. This is where the rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> vicious with nasty teeth so while within Maelar's realm those who have a connection to nature have enhanced senses in second edition this was specifically druids and rangers sense and sounds carry more easily than normal for these individuals so that makes it easier for them to track i would probably just rule that as being you get an advantage on perception checks or survival checks to track, things like that. Yeah, I could see that. But the bonus works both ways because the prey also have enhanced senses and sneaking up on one was nearly impossible. So in second edition, they get a plus four bonus on surprise rolls. So that would basically be a advantage on a perception check or a flat plus five bonus to passive perception in fifth edition. That's how I would run it. Just give them a plus five bonus to their passive perception to notice somebody trying to sneak up on them. So you have to be so much better at stealth than normal to actually sneak up on one of these creatures. Yeah, no, that fits really well. I like that. This turns all of your hunting and tracking skills that have to be turned way up to 11. So that could be a fun place even to run some small ins and outs through there would be a lot of fun. Right. The next location, this is where James gets to run his prison break. Woohoo. Because this is called the vault. That's right. There is a prison on the prison plane. (laughs) Yeah. So it is simply called the vault. And it's run by a faction out of Sigil called the Harmonium, who are kind of like the peacekeepers. If I recall correctly, they're the lawful neutral faction in Sigil. And the prison is for those individuals too dangerous or cunning to be kept in prison in Sigil. So it is this giant metal structure that has three tiny windows, and that's it. That's the only access to the outside. The entire outside of the building is covered with razor vine, and razor shrubs are the only vegetation covering the landscape around it for miles. Oh my. So the only known way in or out of the vault is a two-directional portal that goes from the vault to the middle of the prison in Sigil. Nice. So that's like your ultra-max security prison. Yes. I like it. This is solitary. Yes. (laughs) And if you were to be crazy enough to actually brave all of the razor vine and try and climb through the window, you'd probably end up staring down about 20 crossbows. That's it? That's only a few. Um, Because there's only two groups of people in here, the prisoners and the guards. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the last thing of note here in Colithus is something from 3rd edition called the Garden of Malice. Basically, there's this stretch of Colithus where there is something akin to a hanging garden. So you have all of these descending vines that hang down the mountainside and have all of these very beautiful flowers all over them. But the vines are animate. And if you get too close or try and pick a flower from them or you try and use them to climb, the person doing that will find that they are animate and they will attempt to wring the life out of them. This is basically like a whole bunch of shambleweed and assassin vines and stuff like that. Yeah. This is not going to be a fun time for anybody. (laughs) And the last little note on that is that every 600 days, the vines release seeds. And these seeds are like dandelion puffs. So they've got that little wisp that carries them off on the wind. And it actually will take and carry the seeds across to additional orbs. 
And so while most of the seeds are lost, you know, either blown off into the void or eaten by vermin or what have you, some of them do take root. And so you will find on occasion these plants sort of just really starting to establish themselves on orbs other than the one where the garden is. So it is slowly spreading throughout the layer. And I could see that as like if you were on another orb as kind of an aside thing is maybe like some druid or rangers within the area are trying to get you to clear this out because they're invasive. And so obviously... Well, they're very invasive. Right. So obviously another group's going to want them to keep them established. And so you're going to be working back and forth or potentially, again, knowing how dangerous these vines are, they're just going to send you there to pick some flowers for them so you can get eaten by these plants. Again, going with that whole kind of deception and deviousness that runs through the plane in general. Yeah. All right. So that takes care of that layer. Moving on to... Level five, Porphatis, also called Porphatis of the Black Snow. This layer is interesting. It is a giant shallow ocean of acidic water that has these sandbars that dot it that the petitioners are sort of huddled on. I think I've been on this beach in Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) On occasion, you'll find an island that actually has like a mountain on it. And the mountains will have caves in them. And so they are hotly contested areas because it gives them a chance to get out of the acidic snow. Because you thought acid rain was bad. Yeah, this black acidic snow that falls from the sky deals 1d6 acid damage to unprotected creatures. In second edition, it was 1d6 acid damage per round. In third edition, it was reduced to 1d6 acid damage per 10 minutes. That's a little better. It's still nasty. It's very nasty, yes. So according to the lore, Prophatus is the lair for the shallow and selfish, the individuals who refuse to help others when the opportunity presented itself. So this would be the somebody was out in the woods doing something they weren't supposed to, and there was a car crash and someone was trapped inside the burning car and they could have pulled them out. But then someone would have seen that they were there, and so they left them, and then the car explodes and they die. That sort of thing. What's There's a legal term for it. It's the the maliciously negligent. I forget what exactly the term is, but if you see a crime or you see an assault happening and you choose not to offer aid, in some areas that in itself is a crime. And this would be for those kinds of people. Personally, I would also make this a layer for mutineers because because thematically it would work perfectly. It really would. That's beautifully done. So the only real spectacle that you have here in Porphatis is the half-sunken temple where the titan Oceanus resides. So Swapasaros? <laughs> kind of. And all he does is sit in his half-sunken temple and rant about Poseidon. He's bitter, just a little bitter. He sits there and rants about his nephew Poseidon and how he has been supplanted by him. I like it. Yeah, that's literally all he does. (laughs) But in third edition, they have an interesting little uh, feature to the lair called the Ship of 100. It's also known as the White Caravel. It functions very similarly to the Flying Dutchman. Okay. So it wins its way between these sandbars, picking up stranded souls or travelers brave or foolish enough to have come to Porphatis that are stranded here. Whenever you get onto the ship, it has no visible crew. The ship just operates on its own. But if you go below decks, 
you find 100 sealed unmarked sarcophagi. Ooh, I like it. Which is why it's referred to as the Ship of 100. But the ship is typically inhabited by other petitioners and demons and what have you. Whoever happens to have been on the lair and able to get onto the boat. No one has ever survived attempting to open a sarcophagus. And the people who live on the boat take a really negative view of anyone who wants to try and open a sarcophagus. Because every account that they have of anyone ever trying to do it results in every single person on the boat being killed and devoured by something. Okay, I am channeling White Wolf Games again, but these sarcophagi are obviously antediluvian vampires yes they're like first generation well first generation was kane Kane, so second generation yeah yeah second maybe some thirds but mostly second yeah 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 (laughs) to the point where they refer to this as the cleansing oh i love it and the next time it puts into port it's completely empty that would be a really fun and interesting scenario and i know the perfect person to play this i don't know if they would run it or not but there needs to be a weird D vtm crossover game well i got call of cthulhu for christmas so we could totally do this as a call of cthulhu game oh my yeah we definitely need to play that Holy crap. <laughs> Yeah, that would be right up the alley for something that you could do in Call of Cthulhu. That would be perfect. But that's about it for Prophetus. There's not a whole lot there. It's just this ocean. Yeah, the layers get a bit more sparse as you go down. Again, I think probably the game writers were getting a little tired. But two, they're smaller and smaller also as you go down. So there's that right, as well. Yeah. And then you get to the last layer, which is Agathis, also referred to as Agathis the Icebound, because it is a plane of ice. The only way to get there is to dive into the acidic ocean on Prophetus and swim to the lowest point. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> so not many people go to Agathis. Not many people should want to go to Agathis. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a land of double note. So it is a land of bitter cold and biting ice. Yeah, I don't like this place. The ice itself is fed from the acidic waters of Prophetus. So it is the water dripping from the layer above that is feeding the ice. That sounds terrible. (laughs) I don't want to be here. I don't like it. I want to go home. (laughs) There's also no ambient heat here. And the layer has the negative energy trait, which would reduce the effectiveness of healing magic. So anything that would be radiant or healing magic would be diminished here. Yeah, let's skip this place. I want to go home. The freezing air automatically deals 1d2 cold damage per round. Additionally, in second edition, if you exert yourself for more than one round at a time, you had to succeed on a constitution check with a cumulative minus two penalty per round that you exert yourself. Oh, wow. It didn't say what exactly would happen. I'm assuming that there is a standard penalty for failing a constitution check, but that is a thing, apparently. So, personally, how I would run this... Generally, if you fail the constitution check, you get levels of exhaustion or you pass right. out. Well, they didn't really have levels of exhaustion in second edition, right, so that's, that's yeah, what yeah. I'm getting at. Yeah, you'd probably just pass out, but then you'd use your exhaustion stats for fifth edition. So in 5th edition, personally, I would stretch this out to once per minute as opposed to once per round. And I would start at a DC 5 and have a cumulative plus 1 on each round until you failed. When you fail, you get a rank of exhaustion and then the DC resets back to 5. 
Yeah, that sounds perfectly reasonable for this. Um, Because as you gain levels of exhaustion, it becomes more difficult for you to succeed on a con save. And another thing that I noticed is that there's no indication as to the nature of the petitioners bound to this layer. So this is where I would draw some inspiration from Dante's Inferno, from the individuals that are bound in the ice of Cocytus, the bottom layer. So these would be traitors who betrayed the trust of the ones they loved. So these would be individuals who committed fratricide or patricide or matricide, you know, killed family members. These would be people who murdered or caused the death or ruin of close friends. Uh, These would be people who betrayed hospitality and either caused harm or willingly allowed harm to come to guests or charges in their household. Nope, that makes perfect sense. Remember, boys and girls, Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't their quote, quote, sinful lifestyle. It was the fact that they did not care and protect their guests that brought the wrath of the Almighty. Guest right is very, very important. And Apomps, the Baronaloth responsible for creating the Gareliths, is rumored to have a lair somewhere here on Agathis, likely because it is next to impossible to get to and because he doesn't really want visitors. Yeah, well, stands to reason. <laughs> Especially in a realm where everyone is deceitful and trying to one-up one another, do you really want to take the chance of finding that one individual who can get the one-up on you if you are in his position? Yeah, absolutely not. And then the last location that we're going to touch on is Necromantean, which is the realm of Nerul, the Greyhawk god of death. This is a black ice citadel carved entirely from the ice of the plain, and it is absolutely crawling with all types of undead. At the heart of the citadel is a building called the Hidden Temple, and at the heart of the Hidden Temple is where Nerul's throne stands. Now, again, if you're doing this, you are running an older edition because, again, 4th edition, Nerul kind of went bye-bye. Yeah, Nerul be dead, yo. But, I mean, you can res him and bring him back for this. Your party could be the reason why Nerul went bye-bye because, I don't know, everybody skipped 4th edition. I'm sure they had an explanation in there somewhere that nobody read. (laughs) Well, the individual who became the Raven Queen killed him and used his divine essence in an attempt to achieve godhood. That is correct, yes. Like I said, nobody read that. (laughs) But the temple itself is said to be illuminated by the pallid green glow of gibbering ghoul light lanterns. I like this. You kind of get that whole ziggurat thing again. Wow. Strangely enough, borrows a lot from D&D, but the ziggurats you'd see in in Eastern and Western Plague Lands or later on... Uh, in Northrend, yeah. Northrend. I'm trying to think of the dungeon, and I'm blanking on it, where Kel'Thuzad's at. Yeah, that's um, Naxxramas. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Naxxramas has that same feel with the glowing green fell energy kind of exuding from everything. Right, yeah. So the petitioners of this realm are frozen into the walls and the floors, uh, flush with the surface. In Dante's Inferno, there are some, depending on which ring of the layer of uh, Cocytus you're talking about, they may be frozen up to their waist they may be frozen to the point where just their face sticks out of the ice or just their head sticks out of the ice or when you get down to the very bottom they are 
completely encased in the ice. And it depends on the gravity of their particular treason. So that is something that you can play into here as well. You could have petitioners that are half buried in the ice out in the courtyard. And as you get closer to the throne room where Nerul's throne sits, they are more and more encased in ice until you get into that throne room where the walls are just lined with... Han Solo. (laughs) Yeah. These individuals who have just this, just enough ice over top of them to make a continuous flat surface but it's clear enough to where you can see them clearly within. And you can tell that they've got just enough space to squirm. Yeah, I was going to say you have just enough room to writhe. Yeah, so that is something that you could get into with that if you wanted to get that sort of a really evil feel to it. Absolutely, yeah. And it would be really kind of cool if you just had like a giant ice sculpture on the map as the map piece. That would be really kind of fun. It would get kind of messy. Eventually, yeah. (laughs) But still neat while you're doing it. Just don't do it in the middle of summer. (laughs) Yeah. So that is pretty much everything. I thought this was going to be a shorter episode. It ended up running about as long as all the other ones. So so what do I know? So thank you once again for listening to another episode of Under Common Taste. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Under Common Taste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste, where we put all of our write-ups, both the free ones and the patron-exclusive ones. If you like what we do, consider going over there and becoming a patron and helping support the show financially. We are also on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. Come over, have a chat with us. Tell us your show suggestions. Just come and chat. We're pretty chill. Not a whole lot going on in there the last few days. Well, it's been the holidays, so I mean, it's going to lag a little bit, but that's fine. Yeah. We also have a poll up that I started today for the next four realms. It's the last four that we have to cover. They're going to be the four lawful planes. So we got Arcadia, Bytopia, Acheron, and Gehenna. So we want you to go. It's going to be up for a week. Go and vote on which one you want us to do first. And we're going to take the results and put them in that order. And that's how we're going to present them once we get to that batch. We're going to have... A few weeks in between where we have some less labor intense episodes to put out because it does take a lot to put these episodes together. There's a lot of research that we have to do to do that. So whenever we get them ready, however you guys vote is how we are going to do them in that order. We also have some plans for coming up after, because as we said, these are our last four of the planes to visit. Uh, we'll have a couple outer planes and the Underdark to visit as well. But once we've done that, we've finished our Mojon March. So we do have some ideas for some things coming up after we finish our exploration of the planes that we're excited to bring to you. So stay tuned, follow us up in the next few weeks as we have more information on that as well. Yeah. You also can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, please give us a rating and a comment and a review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you once more for joining us as we wrap up our tour of the Chaotic Plains. And we'll see you next week. Happy gaming, all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. 
You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.